Hello, and welcome to episode 138 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Jared Benford. This week, our host, Karen Meyer, interviews Cognitech's own Russ Olson, who is going to talk about his adventures in storytelling, as well as his new book, Getting Closure. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. First off, a reminder that Closure D Conference is almost here. It's happening February 24th in Berlin. Go to closured.de for all the details. The Dutch Closure Days Call for Papers ends February 28th, 2018. If you would like to submit a talk, go on over to closure.org slash events slash 2018 slash Dutch Closure Day for more information. Finally, the Boston Closure Group meets Thursday, March 8th at 6.30. See meetup.com slash Boston dash closure dash group for more information. Well, that's about it. So on to Karen and Russ and episode 138 of the Cognicast. January 26th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Russ Olson, who is my boss at uh, Cognitech. So welcome to the show, and thanks for being here with us. Oh, thanks, Karen. It's great to be, great to be here. So you have a, a good um, Christmas and New Year's and everything. It's We're in, in, into the new year. Yeah, so my my holidays were great. I took a lot of time off and uh, basically did nothing. And and as they say in the movie, it was everything I ever hoped it could be. Well, that's good. It's finally warmed up here, which um, I am so glad of. And I cannot wait. I guess the Groundhog Day is when we're recording is coming up uh, soon. So we'll uh, we'll hope that he sees is it he sees a shadow or he doesn't see a shadow. I can never. So I'm ashamed to say that I'm from Pennsylvania, which is the the central hub of Groundhog territory, and I have no idea. So <laughs> I, I I should know because I actually watched it. Li- you could watch it live streamed on the yeah, internet from now. Yeah, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. quite it's quite a show. They do like uh, fireworks and like songs and dance all at like 5 a.m. out there in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me it's the biggest thing that happens in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Uh. Well, it's good fun. I think everybody should, uh, you know, watch. It. And actually, I saw. I'm getting too much into random chit chat here, but um, <laughs> I saw, I saw on the, the live cast that people come from like all around the world. Like it's a big thing. Like you have people from Germany, people yeah. from like England. Like they come in for the Groundhog Day because if you think about it, it's kind of like an exotic weird american thing i think it's maybe uh like an outgrowth of a german tradition and if if i'm remembering this correctly in germany they have a similar thing but they use a different animal and then german people came here and they found the closest matching animal <laughs> <and started it. laughs> 
I, you know, I don't know uh, if I really have that story right, but, you know, it's a story, so I'm sticking with it. Uh. <laughs> I, I totally believe it. Okay, so I, I'm supposed to, I'm going to get back on track here, because I'm getting way <laughs> sidetracked, but I'm supposed to, at the beginning of these things, ask you an art question, like a, an art experience. Um, so let's get back on track, and let's have it. <laughs> okay. Uh, an experience of art. So we we had talked um, about doing this podcast about storytelling, and uh, I have been known to tell stories in my life. And I thought I would start by telling the story of how I got involved in storytelling, which is that I inherited it. Um, my dad was this just fantastic storyteller. He could, you know, sort of talk about washing the dishes if he ever washed the dishes. And, and make it interesting. And, and some of my fondest memories growing up were of my dad sitting in the kitchen on a Sunday evening uh, at, you know, at the end of the weekend, just telling story X, you know, he had a set of stories that he liked to tell. And he would tell variations of this, of his collection of stories just over and over and over. And that sounds bad, but it really wasn't because he would change it up. Like one one week the story you would hear the story and it would be really sad and heartbreaking and most of them were about things that had happened to him when he was a kid and the next week he would tell the story and it would be hilarious and as i was growing up at some point i realized hey some of those hilarious stories were actually the heartbreaking stories or the ones that made you think and slowly it began to dawn on me that this wasn't just some magic, you know, when your parents do something and you're kind of a young kid, it just, it just is right. It's just magic, right? Just, they do stuff. Um, and it slowly, it occurred to me that this thing my dad was doing, telling these stories, there was an art and technique to it. And that's where I got interested in storytelling. And so that was probably my formative art experience, just realizing that that storytelling was a thing and that you could learn how to do it and maybe get better at it over time that that's really cool um i I guess from the storytelling aspect my first experience with your skill in storytelling and i think maybe a lot of people's too is is your presentation you did to the moon um, that was at, what, what, I'm trying to remember, I know it you've was, done it a few times, but it was at one of the conges and it was, it was, it was at uh closure conge 2013. That was in Washington, right? Yes. It was in that beautiful, what's the lodge, um, the Masons, um, the Masonic hall. So just, just the gorgeous theater. It was a great moment in my life. I have to say was, was doing that talk there. It was just really enthusiastic bunch of people in a beautiful place. And I was telling a story that I really, really like. And I think the fact that I think if people have heard my name, obviously the world is full of people who have no idea who I am. You know, there's many, many people in this world who have never heard of me. But if you have heard of me, the chances are excellent that that you've not heard of me because of my books or articles I've written or anything else I've done, but that one particular story. And I think that's a, a good illustration of the power of storytelling. I think it's storytelling is one of these things that that you can, if you can do it in any kind of way, actually we all do it, but if you get better at it, it, it makes all kinds of things in your life better 
but every now and then it can, you know, it has this really compelling effect on people. And certainly, as I say, if if you've ever heard of me, chances are you've heard of me through that one story. Yeah, I, I you should probably uh, kind of explain a little bit about what the presentation was about for people that hadn't had the chance to see it. So I'm old. Uh, I grew up in the, you know, I was a little kid in the 1960s and I was 10 years old when uh, Apollo 11 happened and people landed on the moon. And it was an experience that was like a punch in the face to me. And it was looking back on it, it was the moment where, uh, you know, if you're sort of a kid 10 years old and you're watching astronauts landing on the moon and everything like that. Well, I knew that I was not, uh, you know, I tell people that I, you know, did I ever want to be an astronaut? Well, sure, except that I'm afraid of heights and fire and speed and enclosed spaces. You know, I was not going to be an astronaut, but I could I was fascinated by those people in mission control. And what were they? And, you know, what did what did they have to do with the thing and the people who built the rockets and stuff? And that's basically what led me to engineering and and all the rest of it. And so the talk is just kind of me trying to tell that story, but also weaving in what was going on in the world at that time. So the Cold War and and why people went to the moon and, you know, kind of the effects that it had on on society in general. Um, so, yeah, so that that is uh, the moon landing story. Yeah, I mean, I was in the audience as you were telling it and there's that word spellbound like everybody everybody is really just so enthralled and just spellbound by the story it was just an immersive experience at the end you know i was sitting next to uh, a, a, a guy and just like tears were just <laughs> streaming down his face i was like you know <laughs> it was it was really an emotional um and uplifting uh experience uh, and I, I, I kind of want to explore how y- you uh, thought about presenting that and what aspects of the storytelling craft that you brought to it. You know, there's a long list of things that I learned from my dad and learned later, you know, by reading about storytelling and, you know, kind of the technology of storytelling, the techniques of storytelling and and probably we'll spend some time talking about that. But what I want to say up front is that none of that is worth anything if you're not if you don't have a story that you're telling from your heart. And if there is power in the moon landing story, if uh, it's really very nice of you to relate how you were, how it looked from your point of view. But if there's power in that story, if there's something compelling in that story, it is because it really is about something that affected me right to my core. And that is the, you know, you know, storytelling, right, you're, is unfolding. So I'm doing a lousy job of telling this story because I'm giving away the punchline at the end. But the punchline is that you need to find stories and we all have them um, that that kind of touches you. And then the technique of storytelling is to just kind of get that out into the world, you know, sort of export it from inside of you out and share it with other people. And so there uh, there are a lot of, as I say, there's a lot of sort of techniques in storytelling that you can do, but, but the fundamental thing really is you need to find something that touches you and that will uh, push it along technique or no technique. 
So you have a, if I pick out a story or experience that's, that I want to communicate to an audience, what's the first thing that I should do to try to frame that in some sort of fashion for presentation or? So if you're a technical person or a business person, the first thing you need to do is understand the difference between telling a story and giving a presentation. Giving a presentation, you're sharing information. You know, here's the profitability results for the last quarter or whatever. And that's one thing. And that is you're trying to, to educate your audience. And that's what you're trying to do. And, and that's a whole thing in and of itself. With a story, you are not so much trying to educate people as you're trying to reach their heart. Your presentation is for the brain and a story is for the heart. You are trying to move people, even in a, you know, in a little way, right? You don't have to make people cry. But a story, the purpose of a story is to try and reach them in their heart. And so if you've learned sort of the standard ways of giving presentations, they always tell you there's sort of three parts to it. You tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what they, you just told them. <laughs> and that is possibly the worst way to tell a story. So one of the first things, if you're sort of in the business world that we're in, is you need to sort of forget what they've told you about giving presentations when you're trying to tell a story, because stories also have three parts, but they're three very different parts. Stories have, and this always sounds stupid, but it's the only way I can, you know, you can really explain it. Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that sounds trivial and and like I'm being sarcastic here, but it's, it's true. The beginning of a story, you set the scene. So in the moon landing story, it's taking place in 1969. And most of the people I tell the story to weren't alive in 1969. And so the first part of the moon landing story is me trying to explain what the world felt like in 1969, how much did things cost? What was the Cold War? Um, you know, maybe what people were thinking. In fact, in an early version of the moon landing story, uh, kind of the, what I think of as the politically incorrect version of the moon landing story, I talk about, and this, this is true, that in 1969, they had just recently banned smoking in hospitals. <laughs> okay. And I'm not talking about like in the lobby, I'm talking about actually going to see Uncle Fred and lighting up a cigarette in his hospital room. You weren't allowed to do that anymore. Wow. Yeah. And at some point I decided, well, maybe that's not, uh, I don't know. It just, didn't seem to fit with the audiences, but that's the kind of feeling of, you know, if you see, I don't know, movies that were made in 1969, it looks relatively modern, like maybe Mad Men or something like that, but you can never forget that it was a different world and a different time. So the first part of a story is you need to set the scene and, uh, you, you know, like jokes are little tiny stories and they have the three parts of the story. So if you think about uh, setting the scene in the joke, I don't know, uh, a cowboy, an astronaut, and a construction worker walk into a bar. That's all you need to set the scene. I know we're in a joke. I know we're, who all the people are. And so, you know, that scene setting can be as long or as, as short as it needs to be. You don't have to explain everything in great detail, you know, and the construction worker was wearing a hard hat and he had a plaid. You don't really need everything. You just need to give people a feeling for, uh, you know, what world is this story taking place in? 
And then the middle is where most of the story happens. So there's beginning and middle and an end. And the middle is where most of the action happens. So there's typically some kind of conflicts. People are trying to get something. They're trying to win something. They're trying to survive something. Stuff is happening. And then the end is sort of the peak where the thing happens. They land on the moon. The, you know, the girl gets the boy or whatever. The, the conflict is resolved. And, and those are the three parts of a story. So there are stories like, um, if you know the movie Pulp Fiction, does not use this sort of three-part thing. But almost every Hollywood movie does. Almost every, you know, movies these days tend to come in trilogies and they're clearly in three parts. Lots and lots of, you know, it's sort of our default structure for stories is this beginning, middle and end thing. And you can do it a different way, but you really sort of need to know what you're doing and you need to have sort of mastered the idea of how do I tell a story with a beginning, a middle and an end before you can wander off of it or you will confuse the heck out of people. Okay, so, so far... Mm -hmm. I've got tell a story that is something from your heart. Yeah. And it should have a beginning and a middle and an end. Right. Okay. <laughs> there, okay. there must be a, a little bit more. There, there is. Okay. So, so the, the, the uh, one of the little bit more and most of the, so since most of the story happens in the middle part, most of what I'm about to tell you applies to the middle of the story. And But the beginning, middle, and end thing is a clue to it, which is that people like things that come in threes. So if you can structure your story, if you look at whatever you're talking about and sort of pull it apart into, oh, I've got one of these and one of these and one of these or three things, that, that sort of fits with at least the Western tradition of how stories are told. Um, which is why we have three little piggies and three stooges and the jokes have a cowboy, a construction worker and an astronaut. There were three musketeers and I don't know, three wise men. But my favorite uh, version of this is there was, uh, I think, a thriller uh, and there was a novel called Six Days of the Condor and they made a movie out of it. And by the time the movie was done, the title was Three Days of a Condor. <laughs> People just like things that come in threes. And if and if you if you have something that seems like it's going to come in three and there's four or five people will have your listeners will have this like uncomfortable feeling of it's going on too long. And it's it's one of the things I do in the moon landing story is there's I, I do a lot of there's three things, you know, there's three parts to the spaceship, there's three sets of people watching the moon landing. There's three of this and there's three of that. And then the point where I want to like really crank up the tension, something happens, something happens and something happens and you're all ready for it to be over. And then no, it keeps going and going. And that's one of the ways you can crank up the tension. If you do it deliberately, if you do it unconsciously, you will crank up the tension for no reason and it, it will confuse people. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. So there's I mean, there's like the if you think of lots of fairy tales and even lots of like Hollywood movies, there's the sequence always is the heroes trying to do something and they fail, they fail and then they succeed. Right. Right. Um, or they have an idea and that doesn't work and they have a second idea and that doesn't work and they have a third idea. Oh, yeah, that's it. Right. Um, 
that kind of thing. I, and people will, uh, I, I've had people say to me, well, how do you, you know, my story doesn't necessarily divide up and, you know, life does not divide in the threes. And it's, it's almost an arbitrary grouping. You can, you can pick, you know, you can arbitrarily divide your story in three. Um, there's nothing necessarily three-ish about landing on the moon, but you can find ways to divide that story up in the three. So, so that's one thing you, you can you can sort of do. Uh, but probably the uh, the the other storytelling technique that's that's really important is that you need to adopt points of view, right? Again, your gut reaction when you're telling a story is to tell a story like you're telling a joke, right? A cowboy, an astronaut, and a construction worker walk into a bar. You are, it's like you're a drone and you're hovering over at near the ceiling of the bar with a camera and you're watching all this stuff happen. And that is sort of our gut reaction to how you tell a story. I stand outside and I tell what happens. And it's, it makes for a much more effective story if you tell it from the points of view of the people who are you know, in, involved in the story. So I'm walking into this bar and I've got my hard hat on and I look to one side and there's an astronaut and I look to the other side and there's a, let's see, I'm the construction worker, so whoever the other person will be, you know. Uh, tell it from the point of view uh, of the person in the story. I don't know. Uh, Mary was surprised to see the green blob is sort of the narrator way of saying it, which is not really, it doesn't feel that real, but a better would be to Mary, the thing looked like a green blob. And then Mary noticed it was moving, feels real, realer. And maybe, and then Mary saw it. It was blue. Then it was green. It was a blob. Oh God, it's moving, right? Progressively, you're, you're, you're more and more like you're Mary. You know, you're seeing it from Mary's eyes. Um, and I, I have to say, I've been doing this a long time. Every time I do it, like I'm just, telling you this right now, Karen, it makes me feel stupid, right? I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> pretending to be Mary, but it is, it really works. And people will stop. You will, if you're telling the story and you adopt the point of view, you will feel stupid until you look at the people who are listening to you who are suddenly sitting up and paying attention. And then you realize that it's not really that stupid. Um, you know, it's an effective thing. So you did this in the moon landing story too, right? I, I did. So I think I counted at some point and the moon landing story has like 14 points of view in it. And so that, that it, that's kind of a special case. Cause one of the things I was deliberately doing in that story is trying to keep it moving and trying to make it like a thriller, like some kind of Hollywood, you know, like the beginning of every James Bond movie where there's this chase and stuff is just happening and you don't know what's going to happen next because you don't have enough time to think about why, the I don't know, the car exploded or whatever. It That was the, the feeling I was trying to give, at least in the beginning and the end of the moon landing talk. And so it changes points of view many, many times. And when I was putting that story together, I had many three by five cards of like, let, let me see if I can actually sequence these points of view in a, you know, some kind of sensible way. And, but related to, I think the point of view thing is also related to something bigger, which is that you really, you're trying to make 
you know, the story is happening in a world, right? The world of 1969, the world of the three bears, whatever it is. And what you're really trying to do is you're trying to paint a picture. And the more gritty you can make that picture, the more real, the more details you can kind of insert, the more you will pull people into into the story. So again, you don't describe the world, you see it through people's eyes and you try and put details in it that that the person in the story would experience. So not, it was raining hard. You say, her shoes made the squishing sound as she walked through the mud, right? <laughs> they, they both suggest that it's raining, but, or you could say, I don't know, he was frightened, but you could also say, ah, he jerked back, right? Mm -hmm. Both of them give you the feeling that, that, oh, something happened and now I'm frightened, but one is real and the other one is just, you're just saying he was frightened, you know? Um, but I think people who write novels, don't they say, uh, well, you've written a novel. Uh, what is it? Sh show, don't tell. Is yeah, that the... yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds so easy. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's the it's the same thing. So, concrete example from the moon landing talk is uh, there's this wonderful thing that I read uh, when I was doing research for the moon landing talk, which was a news report that said that as they were you know, these two guys are getting down to the last few minutes and they're about to land on the moon. The cars all over the United States pulled off the road because people were so into listening to this that they couldn't drive. And and that's just the bare fact. Right. That's what I started with. But ha so I could have said that and cars pulled off the road. What I actually said was, well, what would it be like if you were like standing on a street for some reason and you saw this happening? So on a city street, if I'm driving in one of these cars, and I can't drive anymore because I'm listening to this thing on my car radio. I would find a place to park or on a, if I'm on a highway, I'd go off onto the shoulder or if I'm on like out in the country, I just stop. And by sort of filling in those details, right, the bare fact is that people stop driving but by filling in those details, you make the story feel real. And oh, by the way, did you notice there were three of them? <laughs> <laughs> so, you did that. I, yeah, I, it, I just felt right. <laughs> it just felt right, yes. Uh, so my, my absolute favorite for like the grittiness is, have you seen the movie Dunkirk? It's, I did, it, I did, I just saw that. that. Well, so the the... I, I have loved this speech just as a as a bit of rhetoric, I guess, in the good sense. You know, rhetoric is sort of the, the like get your point across kind of, the art of getting your point across. But, you know, Churchill, right? So the British are standing alone in, in World War Two. They've been they've had this remarkable they've managed to get their troops out of France, but you can't sort of ignore the fact that they lost France and they're basically losing the war and, and it looks like they're going to be invaded and everything. And Churchill makes Winston Churchill, the British prime minister makes this marvelous speech where he basically says, we are not going to give up. We're going to fight this thing through to the end. And if he actually had said, said it in those words, probably maybe they would have lost the war. What he actually said, and I, I'm actually, I have it in front of me and I'm going to read it because I love, I love the speech is he says, we shall go on to the end. 
We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the ocean. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. The, the power of those words are thinking about this, you know, this united people backing up, but never giving up through their streets and beaches and hills. It, there's power in those words that you just can't get from, we're not going to give up, yeah. you know, and it's the grittiness <laughs> of that, that, um, well, it's the grittiness of that and, and being Winston Churchill, you know? Oh yeah. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If you're going to give a speech, it's a good idea to be Winston Churchill, I think. Yeah. Speeches and movies are, I guess, great examples of uh, storytelling. So I, I know there's this, um, I don't know. Did you ever see Disney's Up? You know, it's always, it's been on my list forever, but I've never actually seen Up. I, I, so you made me admit it on national podcast. Oh my gosh, you have to see it. But I cannot, like, I would go through two boxes of tissues just <laughs> like in the first five minutes. Like the first five minutes is just, uh, you know, Disney in, in, in those, uh, or it's Pixar, I don't know, Disney, Pixar. Anyway, they yeah. just seemed like they, they are masters of, yes. you know, the storytelling. Yeah, I and, and I think it's hard to do with like animated or you know computer generated kind of stuff because you have to build everything, you know, like every twitch of every muscle is is synthetic and somebody had to think about it. W one of the things that got me was uh what's the what's the movie there's actually more than one of them now about the ogre? Oh, Shrek? Shrek. Yeah. Yes. There's a scene in the first Shrek movie where he's running, there's like a drawbridge over a long moat, and he's running across this drawbridge, and the drawbridge is collapsing. So it's the classic cartoon, I'm saying, just ahead of the collapse. But the it's shot as if someone is running ahead of him with a handheld camera. So the camera is kind of bouncing up and down. Mm -hmm. And I must have seen that scene a hundred times before it hit me. There's no camera. This is an animated movie. Somebody thought, we're, and we're going to make the camera bounce up and down, look like someone's running ahead of them, filming them. Yeah. I just, they're masters. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. I, I do, one thing I want to I, I want to put in here, um, since you do conference speaking, I did, I do conference speaking, and I think maybe... If you're if you're speaking at a conference and you've been speaking at a conference for a while and you decide to tell a story and you you're successful at it, there is something I need to there is a warning I need to put in because it's terrifying if you don't know about it, which is that people when a story starts working as opposed to just a presentation, the audience reaction is different and in fact, the body language is different. And if you're not expecting it and you've done a fair number of presentations and you know what an audience looks like when the presentation is going well and when it's not going well, it will, your first time you tell a really successful story to a big audience, it will be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> if I'm doing a presentation, I'm giving you information and 
and it's working, like people are interested, they lean forward in their seats, right? Mm -hmm. You've done, you've done enough conference talks and things like that to know, right? People lean forward, they're engaged, they move with you. So if you walk to the left, their head will turn to the left, like the whole audience will kind of move with you. And it's, it's a subtle thing, but if you do enough of these things, you, you, you pick up on it. And on the other hand, if they, they're sort of sitting back in their seat and not moving, that's a bad sign, right? My, maybe my talk is not going well. Well, it turns out that if you tell a really engrossing story, people will settle back in their seat and not move. They're watching a movie, right? You've, you've got them, you've grabbed them. And if you're used to the uh, sort of presentation reaction, it's absolutely terrifying because it's the better the story gets, the more you feel like you're losing them because the more they'll settle back in their seats. And let me tell you, I, I have never been as frightened as standing up in front of a room full of Danes, Danish people, uh, <laughs> telling that moon landing story, thinking, what, what is going wrong? What am I doing? You thought um, you bombed? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh gosh. So uh, did you practice before? I mean, the, the moon landing story or did you just give it and then just refine it from there? How did you get to the final state? So I, I was working for a government contractor in 2006, I think, something somewhere along those lines, somewhere in that time frame. And the reason... I mentioned it was a government contractor is there were a lot of uh, mili ex-military people working at that company. And and we had this Friday give a talk kind of at lunch, you know, a brown bag kind of, of thing. And I had done a few talks and I could not get a reaction. You know, military people, right? They're lovely people and everything, but they tend to be reserved. And even back then, I sort of thought of myself as a pretty good public speaker and I could not get a reaction out of these people. And so I sat down and I decided to write a talk that would get a reaction. Uh, and and the very early versions of the moon landing talk were, were my effort to get a reaction out of an audience more than anything else. So that, that was kind of the one side of it. The other side of it was this was not long after 9-11. And I was talking to some of the folks in that company and someone who was in maybe her late 20s or early 30s told me, we were talking about that, you know, those moments where the world seems to stand still, um, you know, maybe election nights and things like that, where you just, you remember, you know, everybody remembers where they were. And this woman told me that the only moment she ever had like that in her life was 9-11. Mm. And I thought, oh, you know, we can't have that. Mm -hmm. Um and so that was kind of the, on the one hand, I was like looking around for a story that, that would just get a reaction just as kind of a challenge. And on the other hand, I had this in the back of my mind and I started thinking about, well, what were the, the moments, you know, in my life in a good way, um, that seemed to stand, you know, where time seemed to stand still. Um, and this is what I came up with. Yeah. So. The thing I love about your story too, is it's just so inspiring. Um, I forget the exact words that you ended with, but it was it was something like do something hard or or <laughs> so, yeah, so so John Kennedy who was the president 
kind of behind the whole moon landing. At, at some point, he gave a speech where he said, and people always clip it. It's it's actually longer, and this is kind of like the Cliff Notes version of of the quote, but it works. Is we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that that's kind of the point of the story is that they did this thing going to the moon and it really the motives behind it were kind of not great motives it, was, it had more to do with the cold war than exploring the universe or anything but marvelous things came out of it because they did this really difficult thing well um and i think i think if you're involved in technology or uh you know in in, in lots of things in life i think people are just motivated to do really difficult things well. And I think, particularly if you're if you're kind of in our business, that is kind of our unspoken mantra. I don't know, but it, it's the standard by which we measure things, that you do this hard thing well. But we never actually talk about it. We never actually, like, I, it's it's... One of the one of the things I find endlessly interesting about technical people is there's all these things we know that we never talk about, right? We all share this uh, feeling for why what we're doing is fun and important and everything, but we never actually put it in words. Um, and and I'm not sure that you know I'm I'm like the great poet of of our people or anything like that, but it, this is my attempt to try and put it in the words. Yeah. It, it... It was inspiring, and um, I think it is important to have those moments for us all to collectively, like, look up and, you know, with the moon or at Mars and, uh, you know. Or or, or whatever it is that that you're, you know, whatever seems important, like the hard thing that, that you think needs to be done, and it doesn't really have to have anything to do with space travel or anything like that. I, I do want to say, so we talked about the, the you know, the beginning and the middle of the story. So just, just to finish the thought, finish the story, right? Um, the end of the story is where the conflict kind of resolves, right? We land on the moon or the hero saves the world or whatever it is is you're doing. But one of the key things that you need to do if you're telling a story is when you get to that end is you need to pe- let people breathe after the story is over, so there's all this tension and then you resolve the tension. And if you watch basically every Hollywood movie that's ever been made in the last 30 years, like a thriller, like think of like Die Hard or something like that. There's always two or three minutes at the end of the movie where somebody makes a bad joke mm. or and there's sort of like pleasant music playing. And, you know, in Die Hard, I think there's like millions of dollars of bearer bonds floating down to the ground. <laughs> um, you know, and you need to add that you need to leave time in your story, leave some space in the story for that, because that lets people feel like I had this experience. It's over now, but I'm still sort of part. I'm still sort of I'm sitting on the moon with those astronauts and we're just kind of sitting here absorbing the what happened kind of thing. And and so you don't want to cut your story off too Soon, you want to have that uh, in fairy tales. It's the and they lived happily ever after Mm -hmm. moment, right? Nobody. Yeah, we all know they lived happily ever after. But you need to have that in the fairy tale so we can say, okay, I'm still in the story, but it's over. You know, we we want whatever. 
Definitely. <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking now, like like roller coaster rides. Yeah, they have like that part where you just go back into you know they don't they just don't they just don't stop like right after the <laughs> right yes yes there's and and I I think that that uh, in in a lot of ways stories are how we make sense of our lives right how was your day Karen and you tell me a story oh you know I did this and that and then I had to do this podcast interview with Russ and you know blah 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 and it is how we organize our lives. And I think that if you just sort of, or it's maybe not how we organize our lives, but it's how we tend to think about our lives. And you need to like leave space in that story for sort of the, oh, the day's over. And, and now I'm going to sit in front of the TV and watch Up or whatever. <laughs> see, now you've got to see that now. <laughs> I do. I do. I'll bring a box of Kleenex, though. So uh, I have to ask, have you brought any of your like storytelling skills to your latest book? Because you do have a, a new book out. I do indeed have a new book out. My uh, So I just finished a, a book called Getting Closure, which is about programming in the closure programming language. Um, it's an introduction, assumes that you know how to program, but don't really know anything about closure necessarily. You can. Um, and it's very, it's a idea focused book is how I think of it. So instead of talking uh, about where the parentheses go and that kind of thing, which you have to do to learn programming language to a certain extent, but the, the real focus of getting closure is on the ideas. But I will say that I, I disagree with something that you said to me uh, at the beginning of this conversation, which was that you said that the first time you would come across my storytelling was in the in the moon landing story. And this, I'm really sure that's not true, because I think you read Eloquent Ruby. Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and if people like my books, so, so the way I look at writing a technical book is the entire thing is I'm telling a story. And the story is, the story of Eloquent Ruby is, this is you becoming a better Ruby programmer. The story of getting closure is, this is you becoming a closure programmer. The, so people either like my books or they don't like my books, but the people who like them like them because there is this story in there, which is that I'm becoming a, a closure programmer and now I'm doing this and now I'm doing that. And it is the whole way that I approach kind of explaining technology, which works for some people and not for others. But for those other people, there's, you know, kind of the other books out there. Um, uh, it, it is the way I look at learning anything. So uh, it's Pragmatic Bookshelf, right? The Prags? Yes. Yeah. So it was your other book, Eloquent Ruby, through them as well? So Eloquent Ruby and the one before that, Design Patterns and Ruby, were published by Addison Wesley, which okay. is a Pearson company. And uh, so and really enjoying working with the Prags. And yeah, I've heard great things about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting to get the mix of, of publishers who also, in some sense, really get the technology that you're talking about. And... Not just as like a subject, but, you know, of course, a lot of the pragmatic, the pragmatic press grew out of, uh, I think, a couple of programmers who wanted to publish books. So, so it's, it's obviously it's, it's uh, aimed at programmers wanting to learn closure, but 
do they have to have a background in another language or is it geared towards Java developers or anyone? Before I got the closure of the, the programming languages, I probably knew the best were Ruby, Java, and Python. Um, and so I think that necessarily colors what I think uh, programming is, right? If you're a Ruby, Java, or Python programmer. So basically, closure is different than, than your typical object-oriented programming language. For one thing, it's a functional programming language. But if you sort of put Ruby, Java, and Python in a blender and hit the on button, you get a certain commonality of, you know, certain ideas are common in all three of those languages and lots of other languages, JavaScript and things like that. And that's kind of what I assume going into uh, getting Clojure. Obviously, if you know something about the JVM and you're using Clojure on the JVM, well, that's an advantage. But uh, really, I, if you think about it, Clojure is this, this bundle of ideas, right? There's functional programming, there's immutability, there's sequences, I don't know, there's protocols and, and records and things like that. There's a bunch of ideas in there. And I think the... And, and Clojure also has maybe among some people this reputation of being a hard language to learn. And I don't think that's true. I just think that we need to talk more about the ideas behind Clojure as opposed to where do the brackets go and which quote do I use here and things like that, which works a lot better for a programming language that's more in the in the mainstream. You know, if, it, if, if uh, I'm a Ruby programmer and I'm trying to learn Java or Python or something, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's the same that we don't really have to talk about. And so we end up talking about more like the, the mechanics of it, where Clojure has some really cool ideas in it. And I think of Clojure as um, kind of the greatest hits of the last 20 or 30 years of computer science, right? It's like that, that mixtape, right? Um, yeah. And part of the problem, I think one of the reasons that Clojure, some people think that Clojure is hard to learn is that there's lots of people who know some of the ideas that go in the closure and different people know different subsets of the ideas. But unless you're kind of in the closure world, the chances, the chances of a programmer brand new to closure having knowing all knowing about all of the ideas that go in the closure is pretty small. And I think unfortunately sometimes the explanations for closure will sometimes assume this set of ideas, that you know this set of ideas or this other subset of the ideas. And what I tried really hard to do is say, okay, somebody is not going to know one of these ideas, so let me explain them all. You know, So I'm going to explain to you what functional programming is. I'm going to explain to you what sequences are. I'm going to explain to you what laziness is. I'm going to explain to you what, oh, what's that terrible word? auto iconic what that you know <laughs> what that means the the word that we all know and no one actually says out loud right uh it's a non-podcastable word <laughs> uh, so. well it sounds like it's it's a great book like for, for just new people uh coming to the language but also like if you have just been into the language a, a, you know a bit and you know part of it then it might give you a clearer picture of of all the ideas yeah, I hope so. I hope. Um, so certainly I'm personally, I'm the kind of person who learns about 40% of what I should know about a subject. And then I just start doing it. 
I, I think everybody who writes books, they tend to write the books for themselves. So, so for example, Eloquent Ruby was the book I wished I had when I was learning Ruby because mm -hmm. there were all these, again, there were all these things that people knew that nobody talked about. And uh, so, yeah, um, I hope so. Well, I, I know. Congratulations. Uh, books well, thank are, you. are tons of, of work. So what, when, when did you start working on this one? I am, I am ashamed to say that I, I wrote the first few paragraphs for that book in 2011. Wow. And it, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a long, long... So I wasn't working on it continuously. I would put it down and then pick it up and then put it down and then pick it up. And then there was a new version of closure out and I'd have to change things. And uh, yeah, th there was actually on the closure, I think the closure Google group, someone wrote this really lovely uh, post saying that, that he really enjoyed my Ruby books and he wished that I would write a closure book. And uh, so when the closure book was coming out, when getting closure was coming out just a few weeks ago, um, and I finally have kind of a firm date and everything, I went back and responded to the post and I said something like, well, I'm sorry, it's been six years, six months and 18 <laughs> days. <laughs> it's, it's here. <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that's amazing. I think that you have finished it and like just carried it, it through to the end. I mean, that you know, over any long project, I mean, it, anybody writing a book, it takes a really long time. So I think just the perseverance <laughs> of yeah, sticking it's, with it. I just, you know, it was something I was always doing. And uh, it was actually this past July 4th weekend, I took a lot of time off around the 4th of July. And I just sat down and I realized that that this book had been with me for some substantial portion of my life. <laughs> Maybe I should finish it. Um, and so I really buckled down and I think I, I like finished two chapters that were uh, really kind of blocky. You, you've written books, right? You know, you get to the like the middle of chapter 12 and you just can't seem to make the words go in the right places. Um, and I had a couple of chapters like that that I had been tweaking with and for a long time. And I just sat down and put my head down and and finished them. And then from there, it was uh, uh, kind of downhill all the way. So, Well, congratulations again. And uh, listeners, you should definitely check it out, uh, The Pragmatic Bookshelf, uh, Getting Closure. And we'll put the link on the on the podcast. And can you believe they let me keep that title? I, <laughs> that is the most amazing part of the whole thing is they let me keep that title. I think it's great. And actually, I really, I really like, I, well, you have to go to the listeners have to go to the site to see the cover, but I really like the cover of it too. Uh, maybe you could explain a little bit of it. So, so the subtitle of the book is uh, build your functional skills one idea at a time. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, and so the cover of the book is, and this is the Pragmatic Press they came up with this, but it's basically kind of a a futuristic head, and it's being assembled from little parts. So. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not explaining this very well, um, but it's basically kind of someone's brain being assembled from little atoms of ideas, I guess. Um, they did a great job of kind of turning that subtitle into 
uh, a picture. Yeah. And that is that that is a, a sort of art form that I have no idea about, right? How, how do people come up with that? And it goes with your story, too, the story of you becoming a closure programmer, right? It does, it does indeed go with, go with the story. So I was, uh, yeah, they did a really good job on the cover. But if you write books about Ruby, you get a lot of trains and train stations, and that, that's fine, but uh, this was cooler. Yeah, so. definitely. I like the... Um, is there anything else that you want to mention or, or chat about? Uh, not that I can think of. I think... Uh... I think I have gone on long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that case, I'm going to get, this is actually um, one of my favorite parts of the podcast is getting to hear everybody's advice. And I actually, I saw on, on, I forget where I saw it, but somebody was collecting all the bits of of advice. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Wonderful Uh, advice to collect your advice. (laughs) (laughs) So, So my advice is since we're talking about storytelling, I think that, so clearly, if I haven't said it out loud, I think that storytelling is just part, a big part of what makes us people. It's what makes a part of what makes us human is that we tell each other stories, that we hear stories of things that happened long ago. We make up stories of what's going to happen in the future. And in particular, I think a big part of what makes people people is we have this continuous story in our head of what we think of ourselves and how our life is going, right? So, you know, there's that little voice in your head that's saying, oh, I'm having a great day, oh, it's a beautiful summer afternoon, or I'm having a hard time, or whatever. And I think the thing that I've learned as as I've gone through my life is that you don't really have control necessarily of the things that happen in your life, right? Everybody has bad things that happen and good things that happen. And some of it's under our control and some of it just isn't. But what we do have control over is the story that's running in our head. When things get difficult, I think resilient people start telling them this themselves this story, which is, yeah, I got knocked down today. Yeah, I got knocked down yesterday. I can't remember the last time I got up, but I am going to get up. And so you have this this narrative in your head of what's going on in your life, and you can control it and change it and help yourself get forward and get through the difficult parts in your life by telling yourself the story that you want your life to be. And so that's my advice is to think about the story of your life that you're telling yourself in your head and take control of it. That's great. Hey. <laughs> I, I agree 100%. So that's, that's wonderful advice. Um, well, I always enjoy um, having you on the show and just talking to you. Thank you, Karen. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for all the nice things you've said about me in the last hour well thanks again for being with us um i think we'll wrap it up there thanks russ for taking the time to talk with us and thank you everyone for listening this has been the podcast you have been listening to the cognicast The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. 
We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Russ Olson on Twitter at Russ Olson. Our host was Karen Meyer, whom you can find on Twitter at at Gigasquid. Episode cover art is by, well, <laughs> Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Benford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Jared Benford. Thanks for listening.